Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Hello, and welcome to episode 131 of The Ethical Life, a place where each week we talk about the intersection of ethics and modern life. I'm Scott Rada, social media manager for Lee Enterprises, and I am joined as always by Rick Kite, who is the head of the Ethics Institute at Viterbo University in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Hello, Rick. Hi, Scott. A few weeks ago, I came across two opinion pieces that had dramatically different views, and their headlines sort of speak for themselves. One was written by Agnes Collard and was published in the New Yorker magazine, and it was called, or titled, The Case Against Travel. It turns us into the worst version of ourselves while convincing others that we're at our best. And Matthew Iglesias, writing for his slow, boring substack, put it really clearly. Tourism, he said, is good, actually. We'll link to both of these columns in the show notes. And Rick, before we get into the discussion, I must first tell you and our audience that I come at this firmly on the travel is great side of the argument. But before we go through some of the points outlined by Agnes and Matt, I wanted to put you on the record too. What is your overarching point here? Is travel a good thing? Well, you're not going to like this, Scott. Yes and no. Oftentimes, I just find travel a hassle, especially when when I have to travel. Um, but generally, I enjoy it. And I, I like going a few times a year to certain destinations, places I haven't seen before. But I don't like touristy destinations. And, and part of what Agnes Collard wrote for The New Yorker was more of what I guess might be on the side of touristy type things. But she starts off by talking about something that I was surprised about. And frankly, I'll lean on you to uh, tell me if if, she, if you agree with her conclusions. She says many of the widely known philosophers were in fact opposed to travel. No, I, I think she gets that wrong. I mean, of course, you can find you can find a few philosophers who wrote negative things about travel. You can also find quite a few who were enthusiastic about travel. Um, and mostly what they talked about is how it affects our knowledge of the world and our knowledge of ourselves. And so uh, there's quite a few philosophers who would write, for example, say, don't have false expectations. Don't think that by going overseas, you're encountering something that's completely different than what you're going to encounter at home. And so Emerson, for example, who she quoted as being against travel. Yeah. Right. And, and you've quoted on this show in many different places. Yeah. I really like Emerson. Like one of my favorite quotes from Emerson is everything good is on the highway. In in other words, like that the journey is really significant and that's where you get the reward, not necessarily in the destination. But we learn a great deal on the journey and there's a lot of philosophers who talk about this. The, the process of the physical journey serves as a metaphor for the journey of life. When we do it in the right way, we learn a lot. This is the object of a pilgrimage, for example. Pilgrimage is where you take a, 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 a long journey to, say, a holy site, some destination. You want to get to the destination, but, but the important thing is the journey there and the transformation that you undergo in the travel itself. And this is one of the things I think some of the criticism that Agnes had about about travel now is it's sometimes all about the destination. So we travel in these tin cans to get where we're going, right? Which is usually not fun and maybe unless you're sitting in the first few rows of the plane. Yeah. And there's no there's no really transformative experiment experience in the journey itself. So when you fly across the country, you sit in a tin can for a couple hours, crowded in with a whole bunch of other people, 
Um, the experience, no matter where you travel to, the experience is the same because you're still inside the plane. So, or if you're traveling in a car, you're just inside the car, and the experience is the same no matter where you go. None of the like historical philosophers wrote about that kind of travel. Yeah, yeah, it, it didn't exist, right? So that's why they focused on the journey quite a bit because. Like on the journey, you encounter hardships, you encounter different kinds of people. Um, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't like traditionally, you didn't know when you were going to arrive. Emerson took, would go on these long speaking tours and he traveled late in his life from Boston all the way out to California where he stopped all the way along the way. But some of it was by train, some of it was by horseback. We don't travel in that way anymore. We don't travel by horseback. I'll grant you that. But there are still people who take medium to even sometimes cross-country road trips. Um, yeah. in, in, and like I, when I was a kid, and this is, you, we at the time I was living in West Central Illinois, and we took a kind of classic two-week uh, vacation that took us out to Disneyland in uh, outside of Los Angeles, Anaheim, I think. And, you know, did the Grand Canyon and, and, and did a, the, kind of that traditional loop that I'm sure people still do today. I'll admit I was a little young. I think I was four or five. So my memories of it are more through seeing the pictures years later than from experiencing it. But my sister, who was eight years older than me, remembers it quite well. And, and, and we actually, my sister and I were talking about that trip uh, recently and what I did not know until recently is that much of the big sort of overarching discussion my parents were having during that two-week trip was whether they wanted to make a move to uh, from Western Illinois back to the city in which both of them grew up. And that was a big decision, and they that was sort of a, a big uh, talking point along this what was obviously a very long drive. That experience would be really different if you just, with the four of us were packed into a, a, a plane and we drove a couple hours to Chicago and did a nonstop flight to LA. You don't have that time together as a family to have those conversations. And whether it's about moving to another city or whatever else may you might stumble across along the way, do you think we're missing something in some ways by? not doing more things like that in a car? Um, yeah. You know, there's a there's a long tradition, a whole kind of a genre of movies that are road movies. Oh, yeah. Right? And it's, it's usually, sometimes it's two people like Thelma and Louise, but sometimes it's, it's, a, it's a group of people, but they're traveling somewhere. There's the adventures, but more importantly, the conversations that they have along the way in which their life is transformed in some way. And the way that your parents were, they were having these significant mm -hmm. questions about not just where they were going on this trip, but where Which I'm sure was part of the discussion. Yeah. But also, yeah. you know, broader thing. Yeah. Because it, when, when we get out of our normal surroundings and we're, we're, we're on the move in that literal sense, it takes us out of our habits of thought. It opens our minds up to new possibilities. Travel is a great way to get to know somebody really well. You go on a journey with them. You start telling stories. Uh, you reminisce about where you have been in life. You look forward to where you are going. Like road trips are really great for that. But going back to the column by Agnes, she says that when we travel, and and I think she's talking more about once we reach our destination, mm -hmm. we often become the worst version of ourselves, and that the way we act not only maybe with the people we're with, but how we interact with the people we encounter is not always uh, great. I mean, do you do you ever yeah. help doing that, or do you think there's some truth to that? The Agnes piece is really a, it's a screed against travel in general, but when you really dive into it, it's about particular kinds of travel, certain ways, what, what are the expectations we have of travel, we can become the worst version of ourselves when we go to new places, but then demand that those places be just like the places we're used to. And this happens quite a bit. Tourists can be quite demanding, having everything meet their expectations, but also like going somewhere that's, for example, 
travel to a place of great nat- natural beauty, but then want to have all kinds of shopping experiences that you would have back in your home city. Or the conveniences or the Wi-Fi or all that. All, all of that. Yeah. And these, I think, are just unreasonable expectations. And, and yeah, we shouldn't do that. I mean, the, po- the point of travel um, is to encounter something that's outside of our usual experience. So we kind of expand our horizons. We broaden our experience. And in, in doing that, we broaden ourselves. So I think that that her piece really should have been focused more, instead of against travel, it should have been, how do we travel appropriately? Like, what, mm. what should our expectations be when we travel? And, and I think the expectation is always to learn something, to open my mind up to new ways of, new things in the world that I haven't experienced, new people, new customs, new traditions, all of those things. So I want to focus on something here for a minute. And I think this is, although we've never traveled together, I'm guessing this is, if we were to, this is probably how we might differ. You've talked about sort of looking at going on a trip in sort of two ways, two two things. One, the 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 destination itself. And then two, you talk about the the part about getting there and and, and the journey to arrive. I would add a third piece to that, and that is the planning and anticipation of the trip and sort of getting things in order, making a choice of not only where to go in a larger sense, but where to go once you get there and making sure, you know, looking around and finding, oh gosh, like, well, we were in New Orleans, um, uh, Travis and I were in New Orleans uh, last April, and that's a city that has a lot of tourists and a lot of tours. And I spent a few minutes, uh, more than a few minutes, going through a couple sites and figuring out these are the two or three tours that I think we'd really enjoy and finding just the right Airbnb and that was in a, in a good location and all that stuff. I enjoy all that. And to me, that even adds to the uh, enjoyment of the whole process. So you have sort of the, the anticipatory planning, you have the journey getting there, and you have the time you're actually there. My guess, though, is that if we were doing a trip somewhere, that you are much less interested in those sort of details that I outline, that you're a little less planful and maybe don't enjoy that part as much as I might. Am I correct there? Actually, I actually enjoy the planning quite a bit. Okay. Um, however, my ideal kind of uh, of trip is one where I wouldn't have to plan too much. Um, the problem is that, like lots of travel, you have to plan, or otherwise you're going to be stuck with no place to stay, right? If you, yeah, like certain kinds of destinations or a place that you want to stay. Yeah. Um, but my ideal kind of trip is going somewhere and getting lost, and then the and exploring. So I and that I'd could be like, in a and that could be in a city or a forest. I'm guessing. Yeah, then and expecting something like outside the ordinary. But a lot of times, if you're say you're on a road trip, it used to be the case. I found like when I was younger, it was a lot easier to travel and then drive to somewhere and then find a place to stay at night. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that's harder to always count on right now. Um, you can sometimes do that, but but there are places where you go like if you don't have a place to stay, you're not going to get one. And, so that's a little bit harder. But this is one reason my wife and I, for the first time, we got a little camper so we can just take off and go somewhere and then just find a place to pull it over. So just a little 15-foot camper. Um, so on a road trip, uh, we don't have to reserve a hotel, which means that like, you don't have to get to your destination that night. So if you find something interesting on the way where you're going, you can take a little more time and spend more time there or go take a different route than you were planning on. I actually really enjoy the planning. I do a lot of planning for for trips, um, and yet I generally find when I get back, the things that stick in my mind are the things that I hadn't planned for. Just meaning that they're, they they created deeper memories. Yeah, yeah, uh, finding some unexpected place. Lots of times when I travel, I, I carry a fly rod, and I'll if I have an extra day or two, say what, going to a conference or something, I'll try to take a a, a day to go find a trout stream somewhere nearby because that takes me into some, usually into an out-of-the-way place of really great natural beauty that I wouldn't have discovered 
otherwise. It forces me to get out of the you know frequently traveled roads and to go explore little places. And lots of times I end up not finding a very good place to fish, but I have some really cool adventures just trying to find some place. So I'll like I'll have a name of a stream that I found somewhere like looked promising on a map or I've found on some blog post, some people cited it, looked really good. So I have to go search for it and find it. Where where is there some public access? All of those things. And I find that really, really fascinating, even though I oftentimes end up not catching many fish. I I just uh we'll move off Agnes's piece here in a moment, but one last thing I wanted to to mention there, and I, I think she says this, I, 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 maybe not directly, but that I think for some people going on vacations and trips, especially to more picturesque or exotic or out of the way places is an ex- a way you can sort of show off to your Instagram, Facebook, social media followers. Oh, look at me. I'm at the top of a mountain or look at me. I'm at a five-star hotel in the middle of some big city or whatever the case might be that it is sort of a way to show off, I suppose. And I mean, I'm absolutely sure that happens. I mean, there are even, I'm, I've even seen in travel articles like the top five Instagrammable uh, places to go to in New York City or, you know, name your destination. And the, so of course that happens. At the same time, and and we, we're, we're connected through uh, Facebook and, I, and when uh, we travel, I'll often post of a place or two that we are. I'll tell you though, it's, it's has some interesting, uh, uh, and positive results, for example, and, and this is not maybe under the, under the category of far away and exotic, but we were spending a few days in Des Moines and we were at some little restaurant that had an interesting menu. And I think I put something on Facebook about, Hey, this is a, you know, if you're ever in Des Moines, check this place out. It's a pretty good place. And then a half hour later, I get a message, a Facebook message from a friend. I'm connected through Facebook, but, uh, you know, kind of, there was that period when Facebook kind of came online and you friended all your old, uh, acquaintances and classmates from high school. And this was a, a, a friend of mine from high school, uh, who, although we were decent friends in high school, I had, you know, really no knowledge of or connected with at all. But I, what he sent me a note saying, and I, I did know, and maybe just from things I had read, that he's a pilot for Southwest Airlines. And he said, well, you know, I'm going to, how long are you going to be in Des Moines? I have a, a 18 hour layover in a day or two in Des Moines. If you're still there, we should get together. And we were still there and we got together and had a great breakfast. And of course, it was mostly reminiscing about the good old days, but then also talking about what we've been up to and and it was, and it was a, it was a, you know, a great little serendipitous thing that, and I think things like that are, are great. And there's been other instances where I've, you know, been someplace in, uh, and somebody will send me a note saying, Hey, if you're in this town, be sure to check this place out or be sure to check that place out. So I think there are some good things that can come from that, but I don't know, but you don't, well, but you, but I guess I'll, I'll ask you though that you travel at least as much as I do, sometimes for work, sometimes for pleasure, and you don't go out of your way to share those things on social media, at least that I see. Is there any reason? Um, yeah, I I don't, I just don't post much on social media in general. Well, that's um, true. I, I mean, I don't, I don't have any interest in, like, say, bragging about the places that I'm going, and, um, but I do find that one of the I'm, I'm not saying that that's what you're doing. I just like, I have no interest in, you know, broadcasting, you know, where I'm or where, I, what I'm doing. But I, I, I do think that's one of the real advantages of social media is this ability to reconnect with people in kind of unusual places where you would have no, you know, you would know the phone number of this, this friend who is a pilot for Southwest. Oh, oh. When you post something, you're able to connect in that way. I think that's, that's really cool. And I think your your story also illustrated what I was trying to get at kind of clumsily before, that like in the midst of the planning for the trip, this openness to the serendipitous experience, right? Yeah. Like you get home and you think, 
that was the most rewarding part of the whole thing. This something I didn't plan on, but sitting down and have a conversation with an old friend. I find that over and over again, like the most rewarding parts of travel are the these experiences that I hadn't expected, but you have to be open to them. And if you if you don't if you don't plan and actually engage in the travel, you never have those experiences. So you you have to do it and then trust that something interesting is going to happen. I also mentioned there was a piece uh, by Matt Iglesias called Tourism is Good, actually. And he takes a little bit of a different angle on this than Agnes does. Agnes is writing this more about as a critique of those who are traveling and who choose to travel. Matt writes it a bit more from a policy standpoint, but about how many people in cities, uh, how they look at tourists, how they don't always embrace tourism, how we put sometimes restrictions around uh, uh, things such as Airbnbs and other short-term rentals that sometimes tamp down on tourism. But to me, the top line piece of this is that if you live in a city, and I can tell you, I'm not going to name it, I've lived in a city that had like zero tourism interest. And we live in a city now in La Crosse, Wisconsin, that is like a destination for people for all sorts of reasons. And I would much rather live in a city that attracts tourists versus being in that city that when you say you where you live, people kind of look at you and have that look about, well, why would you want to live there? So I, I think, first of all, if you live in a city that attracts tourism, be happy about that. Absolutely. Um, for, for one thing, you generally have a lot more restaurants and things like that, because when you have tourism, you have a lot of people with all, you know, extra discretionary income. They're looking for places to go to where they're going to spend that money. And those restaurants and coffee shops and taverns, those things wouldn't, the number and variety of them wouldn't be supportable without the tourists, right? And, and in almost every city in America, you know, I mean, you what is the, where is some of the highest sales tax uh, assessed? Hotels. Because yeah. not only do you have the regular sales tax like you have on other products, but almost every city has some sort of tourism tax that might fund a convention center or, or a stadium or other such things that almost nobody is paying locally. Nobody who lives in a city is going to stay in a hotel in that city. So, I mean, from a taxing standpoint, it's great. And are there exceptions to this? Probably. But in general, tourism, tourists rather, don't take up a lot of public resources. Most of the time, they're not causing trouble that involves the police. They're not sending their kids to school. They're not doing, and yeah, they're using your roads, I suppose, but probably not at rush hour when traffic is the heaviest. And and if they are using your roads, they're probably buying gas that will uh, help pay for the, for the and fund those roads. So yeah, but they can they can also be very frustrating if you're if you're in an area with a that has really high number of tourists, and which is not where we live. But you're talking where we live, so but like New York City or or Yellowstone or places. Yeah, well, I guess. But yeah. my wife and I ran a miniature golf course for nine summers in Manitou Springs, Colorado. Okay, and is that in the on the in the Rockies? Yeah, so it's it's adjacent to Colorado Springs, just on the okay. western side, so right at the foot of Pikes Peak, and so it was it was a place with a lot of tourists. So, you know, tourist businesses like our little mini golf course, but also a lot of hotels, and um, and it was a it was a stopover place for people that were traveling on their way into the mountains, so they would stop and spend a night or two there. And then go into the into the mountains for a vacation. Then on the way out, they'd spend a night or two there on their way traveling back. So here we are in this business, heavily dependent on tourists. Probably seventy five percent of our business was was tourists. Um, and yet you'd get in your car to drive somewhere, and you've got you know license plates from all these other states, and they're driving you know like twenty miles an hour in a thirty five mile an hour zone, and they're not using their turn signals or they're, you know, they're, they keep slowing down to look at something and then speeding up and, and you have to navigate. So you're just trying to get across town that's taken forever because you've got all these tourists in your way. 
and and you start noticing that people with Colorado license plates are like speeding around anybody that has an out-of-state plate because you know they know that whoever they are they're not going to know where they're going and and they're just an obstacle in the way and so what what happens in these high tourist areas is the locals get pretty frustrated with them because so at the same time you know that, that your income is highly dependent on the presence of the tourist just the number of them gets it it just a fatigue sets in of dealing with you know all these people who don't know where they're going all the time part of that's part of what Euglacius is talking about this this resentment towards the tourist and you ran this uh, mini golf course. This was like in the 90s? Uh, 80s and 90s. 80s. It, mostly in the 80s. So here is my guess. And and uh, I don't know if any, I, although there's probably no study to show this, I, I'm pretty sure I'm right. That if you went, and I, it may not be a mini golf course anymore, but if you went back to that area that was still probably is still very dependent on tourists, I think you might be surprised at how their behaviors are different because back then, everybody who was in your city for the first time was either lost or using some paper map to get around and not sure where they were going. And now, if you want to go have breakfast, you know, leave your hotel, have breakfast, go to the mini golf shop, and then go to the... Uh, the mall, if there is such a thing out yeah. there, you can put those things in your phone, and the phone will tell you the best way to go. And it's it. I I think technology has really made the drudgery parts of travel, whether it's driving from place to place, whether it's flying from place to place, much much better than it used to be. So I bet you. That some of those again, I'm sure there some of that still goes on because you're still in an advantage if you know an area versus relying on uh, Siri or whatever smart device you have to give you turn by turn directions. But I bet all that I bet that's gotten a lot better. I think it has gotten better in the sense, yeah, you don't have people kind of wandering around as much and lost and- Or asking for directions. I mean, when was the last time you stopped at a gas station to ask for directions? Oh, and we would have people stop and ask us for directions all the time. I remember uh, one time somebody like, so we're right at the base of Pikes Peak. You can see Pikes Peak very clearly from from our little mini golf. We'd had one day where these clouds had set in, these low-lying clouds the whole week. So you couldn't see the mountains at all for a week. And um, we had somebody come up and ask us, we've been trying to find Pike's Peak. Could you point out where it is? We said, like, I'm sorry, you just, you came at a bad time. You can't see it at all. But we had, yeah, we had people stopping and asking for directions all the time for places. So travel has become much more efficient, traffic flow, all of those things. At the same time, you have much higher densities at, at the big time locations. Um, yeah. So if this has made something like um, like like skiing in Colorado has become just a miserable experience. If you fly into Denver, you've got an hours and hours of of commute into the mountains, and it's a, it's bumper to bumper traffic the whole way, um, just because there's so many travel in a way is easier. That means a lot more people are going to these like hot, really highly desirable places. Uh, but then you're dealing with much larger crowds, so that's that's the difference. I don't think you have many people as many people wandering a lot around lost, but you have a a lot more people going to some places. And you and I are both old enough that we, at least, and I'll say I should remember this. I frankly don't remember this, and I'll be curious if you do, but I just can't imagine what it would be like to fly today without a smartphone in my pocket and you know in case you have a gate change or to make sure your plane is on time or to check into your flight or even to use the boarding pass that gets fed automatically to your phone not to mention it again this is it's just i don't think people understand this and again maybe people didn't fly as much 25 years ago but like 25 30 years ago every single person on a plane 
was there because they had used a phone to book a flight, either directly through a airline or through a travel yep. agent. And it's just, I mean, I just like, I can't imagine how much, you know, more difficult it would be to do all those things than it is today. And, and, and I think, again, I talked a few minutes ago on the show about how the planning and the anticipatory part is sort of fun. I promise you that it would have been a lot less fun if I were sitting on hold for 45 minutes just to talk to someone at the airline to see where the best tickets are from point A to point B. Um, Scott, I, I met my wife when we were both, we were both doing a junior year abroad in England. We were at the University of Lancaster and, and we had, you know, dated a couple of times and we decided a, a break was coming up, the Christmas break, which the British universities is four weeks long. There's a four week break in the winter and then another four week break in the spring. I think it was either the winter or the spring break, but we decided we wanted to go to the Western Isles of, of Scotland. And, um, so we hitchhiked, no cell phones. Um, uh, we, we had some maps, but the maps weren't all that good. We were lost a lot. And, you know, and, and, and then we'd, you know, get on trails on these hiking trails somewhere to, to go to a little village, you know, but we're looking on a map. It, it was so cool. It was such a great adventure. Did you ever feel nervous, scared, uneasy at any time? Uh, no, I mean we had there were some times where we encountered some real hardship, like a couple of days where we had downpouring rain, you know, and trying to catch a ride and downpouring rain, and then for a while Cindy got a cold, so she was feeling miserable, and you know, and and there was no place to go warm up. Which I mean, when you have a cold, you just want to be warm somewhere. So there's there was C.S. Lewis, by the way, says an adventure is never fun when you're having it. And um, like afterwards, we look back with great fondness, but I know we had some really miserable times during that during that trip, but it was such a great adventure in a way that is almost impossible now, mm-hmm. like with cell phones, because you're, you can always you can always find some help. So here we come into this little village. Um, we got dropped off by a person at night, so it's after dark. We didn't have a place to stay, and we look around. There's no hotels or anything there, and um, so we're we find somebody on the street, and we say, "Like, is there any bed and breakfast here anywhere?" And he says, "Yeah, Mrs. McClellan, right? You know, runs why not?" So he kind of points the direction. So we walk down the street. Well, just a, just these little cottages. There's no sign out. We thought there'd be a little sign for bed and breakfast. There's nothing like that. So we just start knocking on doors. We say we're looking for Mrs. McClellan. And, you know, so eventually the neighbors, they all know who she is, you know, so they point us out. So we knock on her door and she opens it up, welcomes us in. And, you know, like, and, and the power was out in this island on in Western Scotland. And um, power is out, fixes us this beautiful dinner on a little propane stove. Mm. Um, and it was, it was really delightful. Um, but that's just not possible anymore to do that kind of travel. And I kind of miss those days. Um, and partly I think because of the hardship of it. Well, and I think that leads me a little bit to the last thing I wanted to touch on on this topic. And Mrs. McClellan was not running what we would call today to be an Airbnb, but in some ways that was what she was doing in, in a pre-internet age. And there are many debates in cities across the country, including the one in which we live, with people trying to restrict short-term rentals, whether they're Airbnbs, Verbo, or some of the other ones out there, because they're, they feel that, especially, and again, this is probably more prevalent in towns that have even more tourism than where we live, but there are too many uh, single family homes or apartments, what have you, being bought up by investors, sometimes in, in pretty large numbers, and being turned into the short-term rentals, which critics say have the propensity to drive up rents or or house home prices in these regions. I know I have a pretty uh, firm uh, position on this, but I will let you give yours uh, first. I like Airbnbs. Yeah, I like staying in them. One of the reasons I like staying in them is that you get to meet and interact with the people 
in the area. So you're in a house in a neighborhood. We, we speak of hospitality, the hospitality industry is, you know, restaurants and hotels and things, but you, for the most part, these are experiences in which you're only interacting with other travelers. You're not really having meaningful experience with the residents of the place. Um, with Airbnb, uh, lots of times you're staying um, sometimes in a room in somebody's house. Mm-hmm. And and I've had some great experiences doing that, staying and then getting up in the morning and, and like having breakfast and having these wonderful con- conversations with the hosts of the place and just talking to them about about their experience of life, about, you know, whatever is going and they'll recommend you should go see this or go see that and so forth. And, and I remember right after the pandemic, I had this really wonderful experience in Massachusetts of staying with this with this couple. And um the the wife was a she was an immigrant from Russia and and she was talking about how like many of the restrictions during COVID just reminded her of her childhood in Russia, the kind of these restrictions that would just come out of nowhere and they would be blanket prescriptions. And she had, and she she ta- told me about how they they would always have to find a way around. <laughs> and she said she started thinking about that because here is her, her daughter was a freshman in college and there was all these restrictions on students getting together. And she said, so here's her daughter in college with all these other students and feeling really isolated because all the social opportunities are denied them. And so they they started creating these, they would have bonfires in their backyard and where her, her daughter could invite some of her college friends and they could gather outside around this bonfire, something that was actually prohibited by the rules of the college where they were, but she said it was a way around, right? It was just this fascinating conversation. I never thought of you know, looking at the way we were doing those COVID restrictions at the time in that way from her perspective. So my experience with Airbnb has been just wonderful because it allows the reintroduction of the ancient practice of hospitality, that is making room for the guest and this experience that goes on between the host and the guest. So I agree with everything you said. I would say I know if I had to guess when we travel, it's probably 50, 50, a traditional hotel versus an Airbnb. Um, I think there are times one makes more sense than the other, depending on the the trip. As far though, as these policies where, uh, cities are trying to restrict them because of upward pricing pressure in the housing market, there is, and again, it's not a short-term fix, but it's a medium term fix is just allow people to build more housing and make it easier. And if if and if you live in a place where people want to visit, you probably also live in a place where people want to live. And it is up to the city not to say, how can we dial down that demand? But in fact, how can we capitalize on this? And how can we make, uh, in smart and thoughtful ways, encourage more growth, more development in our city, find places that are underused and make them better. That to me is the response to these policies instead of saying, oh no, we don't want people coming to our community. We don't want that hospitality you just outlined. I think that's just the wrong approach. I agree with you completely. I I understand that there might be some places that have way too many Airbnbs. And so you have, it, it exerts this kind of pressure on the housing market almost overnight, right? In a way that it would take a long time for the market to catch up by building more housing. Um, but but things like Airbnb, Verbo, and so forth, it's always going to be a niche, mar- niche market. Uh, hotels are going to be much more convenient and suitable and affordable for most travel. Um, but there are times where you have a group of people and you want to, say, rent a house together with that group of people. Um, and have a shared kitchen and, and, and a, a big, maybe deck or outside space. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and so it allows for that kind of experience, which was very difficult to do otherwise. So I, th- I think they're fantastic. Um, I've actually right now, um, a house uh, right next door to me is an Airbnb. Oh. Just purchased by somebody and turned into an Airbnb and they fixed it up. Um, and and one of the things about, about how Airbnb works 
you don't only as as the guest you rate the the home the place where you stay, but the hosts also rate the guests. And so if you have people that have exhibit really bad behavior, they they're they're very loud or rude or they you know they cause a disruption. Um, they get a check mark against them, and they're not going to be welcomed to to rent in other places. And so, for the most part, you know, your experience of of having people stay in a neighborhood with Airbnb is going to be really positive, because they're they're trying to make sure they're on their best behavior so that they can continue to use that service. Well, because Rick, there's one next door to you. I expect you to fire up that propane stove one night and cook a meal for some young couple who's new to town. We may, we may end up doing that. I don't know. It doesn't happen much in the winter, but we'll see what happens in the summer. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. We end each show by tackling an ethical dilemma, and Rick, here is my question for you. You are a member of a city committee that helps decide which projects to fund with taxpayer money. During a public hearing, a large group of well-organized people shows up to promote its project, while a second project only has a single person talk about its benefits. When you decide which of these projects to fund, does the drastic difference in turnout sway you at all? Uh, absolutely, it does. It, it certainly wouldn't be the only consideration, but it would be part of it. So just just seeing that there is there there's a, there seems to be broad support, it would tell you that there's at least a certain amount of energy um, in favor of that one project. Now. It, we wouldn't guarantee it might be that that for some reason supporters of the other project just weren't informed very well the person that was hadn't communicated well or something like that and they it might have more broad public support than is represented at the meeting um, but it would be a pretty good indication and so I would say it would it would sway or would influence my decision it wouldn't determine it but it would, if it if if it were a, in your mind a close call, that could break the tie. Yeah, yeah. And I I, I asked the question, I guess, because, and I would, and I in my dilemma, I said a large group of well organized people shows up again. I'm not thinking hundreds. I'm thinking, you know, you've been to city meetings like I have yeah. in our town, at least. A large group of well organized people can be a group of eight, right? Right. Right. And, so we're not talking, you know, mobs break, uh, showing up outside uh, with signs. But what I worry about sometimes is if this, you know, let's say there's a park in one part of town that wants an improvement and there are eight people who live and this, we'll just say this is a more well-to-do part of the city. And these eight people are really care about this park and they're plugged into local government and they know when the meetings are, and so they'll show up to uh, talk about why this is important to them. And there is another park in a part of town that is less prosperous, who uh, the people who live there may not be as well connected to local government, may not be able to take time off from their jobs to show up at these meetings, which too often, by the way, are held at inconvenient times for the public. And I, I just worry that the public officials listen too 
much to the well-intentioned loud group because they are the ones who are playing by the rules and know when all the committee meetings are and and know maybe have a, a decent relationship with their city council person versus the folks who all they know is that there is a park down the street that their kids go to and whenever their kids go there there seems to be a lack of equipment and they if asked would probably say yeah it'd be great if the city put some new equipment in that park because when my kids go there it's all filled but they don't necessarily know how the process works they don't know who necessarily to contact and it may not even be top of mind for them but I don't know. I just worry when it comes to local, and this is a very local government issue, that too often our representatives listen to the people who are more familiar and plugged into the process. Yeah, and that that's why it's really important that if you're a voter, you vote for um, a representative on on city council who is is actually going to take the time to get to know their constituents and to have the kind of relationship so they have a knowledge that goes a little bit more in depth than just whoever happens to show up at these committee meetings because you're exactly right it can favor the like the the few people who happen to be really plugged in and have the extra time the ability to, and and know kind of know like which for many proposals, there's there's not just one meeting of the city council. There's these committees that make the recommendations. So knowing when those meetings take place and which ones are most important, right, to go to to kind of leverage that that influence. Um, so you want you want representatives who know their constituents well enough to have a sense of what is important to them beyond just attending those meetings. What I'd like to say is all things being equal. Like if you if you know mm-hmm. that, like there's there's generally it's it's well known what these projects are. You know, people have plenty of opportunity to come in and weigh in. And there's a lot of support for one, very little support for the other. You would say, Okay, um let's let's support the let's let's favor the one for which there is more public support. And and who shows up at the public meeting is one indication of that. It's not the only one. Am I right that you've never held public office, right? No, and nor have I. And I, but I, I've served on I've served on committees. That, yeah, well, yeah, in county for county government. Yeah, and I guess the question is, if you were a city council representative, and you notice that people from your district are not as active in, you know, showing up to public hearings, even contacting you about issues. And you maybe talk to your colleagues on the council and you say, and they might tell you, oh, I hear from people all the time, good things and bad, probably more bad because that's just the nature of that business. And you sit back and think, well, geez, I don't hear from as many people. And the people in my district don't seem to come and show up to these uh, governmental functions. I guess you could look at that two ways, right? That people in your district are happy and satisfied and don't really have any large concerns. Or at the same time, how much do you think as a local government representative that you need to go out there and educate or find ways to make city government more approachable to the people who may not have any idea or understanding of how it works? Yeah, I think that's absolutely an obligation fear and city government to to go out, let people know how it works, how to reach you, where they can have the greatest uh, input into into the decision making, because you're elected to represent those constituents. And so you can't just sit back and wait for them to contact you because there'll be a lot of people that aren't really tight, that just don't know how to contact you and how the process works. And so you've got to let them know. And I, and I guess... Again, and maybe this is beyond local government, maybe it's a state and federal too, but speaking of local government right now, I am convinced that the squeaky wheel is where it gets the attention and that too often 
people who have legitimate concerns just don't know what to do with those concerns. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But I, I think, um, I guess that's why, I guess that's why I wanted to ask the question is that those well-organized, well-meaning groups, I, I worry sometimes just are heard a little too, you hear from a little too often. Yeah. I, the, so the squeaky wheel gets the grease and you know why that is? Cause it, the, the wheel is squeaking because there's not enough grease in it. So the squeaky wheel needs more grease. Right? Yeah. So that, yeah. I mean, that's a good indication. Um, people tend to show up for for those kinds of hearings, not usually not to support something, but because they're angry about some proposal that would have a negative effect. So they're more they're more likely to show up uh, to complain about a proposal, right? Um, that's and, that's and negative. Say, and, and I, I can't believe there's ever a public hearing where. Somebody stood up and said, hi, I'd just like to tell the council that everything's great. Thank you very much. And sit back down. That that does that just does not happen. Um, and I know serving on the the ethics board for La Crosse County over the years, we've had a number of decisions, some of them just kind of under the radar. There's not a lot of public interest, a couple that where there's been a great deal of public interest. Um, and sometimes, you know, we'd have a lot large numbers of the public showing up and as we were gathering evidence of, say, an alleged violation of some county ethics rules, that tended to have very little influence on us at all because it was usually, we had to we had to gather the evidence and then find out, like, is there an actual violation of the code or not? So you have to weigh the evidence against what the code actually says. And it doesn't matter how impassioned people are about, you know, whether they, they support a, a, a certain person or they're, or they're upset and they want that person punished. It just doesn't matter. And so that's the other thing. Just because people are showing up in support or against something, that may matter if everything is the same and you're just trying to weigh how much interest is there in this, and that's going to sway the decision. There's other kinds of decisions where you have to say, well, I know you want this to be done, but we can't. It's illegal, <laughs> Right. So there are a lot of considerations at play, and that's what we—that's what we elect representatives to do—is to to weigh all of the factors. As a reminder, the Ethical Life podcast is a production of Lee Enterprises. Please subscribe to the Ethical Life wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to check out Rick's column about ethics, and that can be found on all Lee newspaper websites. For Rick Kite, I am Scott Rada. Thank you for joining us. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.